Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Square Ball Podcast. Hello there and welcome to the show. Dan here with Michael from The Square Ball and Phil Hay from The Athletic for our regular End of week catch up, which we've delayed slightly as well, just because we had the uh, Angus Kinnear interview uh, that went out. Uh, we're going to get onto that in a minute. First thing to say is that the show is brought to you by what's that, Michael? Have you got very clean hands there? Yep. What's that? Why are you why are you wearing a hoodie? If you're on the by the way, if you listen to the audio version, have a look on YouTube. It's on there as well. Michael is wearing an astonish hoodie on yes. one of the warmest days of the year. Oh, I'm glad to be wearing it. <laughs> it's definitely not for this. Uh, just for this read, I've got the big three, Anna. I've got the big three in front of me. What are they? Protect and care antibacterial hand wash, extra strength grease lifter. Yeah. And of course, my my personal favourite, the mold and melting blast. <laughs> what flavour is that? Um a- apple. apple Blast. Apple. Very, very, very good. Uh, astonished manufacture ethical household and personal care cleaning products. Where do they make them? Yorkshire. Exactly. Uh, born and bred in Leeds, award winning value products include the UK's number one mold and mildew blaster. Show it to the camera. <laughs> there it is. The deep cleaning and safe-to-touch oven and grill cleaning paste. We haven't got that to hand because it's not part of the big three today. Might be another day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there's no harsh chemicals, no corrosives. Officially certified cruelty-free and vegan as well. Astonish.co.uk for details. Um, I'm going to take my hoodie off now because, as you said, it's 26 I, degrees outside. I think yeah. that hoodie needs a courtesy wash, don't you? He's yeah. been in here for about nine months. <laughs> a courtesy wash for himself, probably. It's like my kickboxing tail. I use it twice a week. I haven't washed it in two years. Phil. That's... Absolutely outrageous. You must, you that, must be it? riddled with fungus. No, it's all right. It survives every week. <laughs> I don't know what the other people make of it, but um, from my point of view, it's fine. Smell like a shin pad. <laughs> <laughs> well, then, yeah, we spoke to Angus Kinnear. Should we have a little uh, little debrief on that? Because it's one of the uh, the big talking points at the minute. Big, big debrief. And really? you and you did. Uh, you somehow. I mean, we we were obviously coordinating on that. And you were going to run the transcript, and then I sent you the the transcript because you can generate them with computers these days. And uh, you were too lazy to write out it. Look, well, you see, back in the day, I would have sat and typed that word for word from start to finish, and it's only really in the last couple of years that you've been able to use AI software, yeah, yeah to to do it for you. And I have to say, the second transcript you sent me through was absolutely word perfect, which was um, pretty incredible. But yeah, the original plan. I was going to say, we, been, we scrolled down to the bottom, it was 24 and a half thousand words. Yeah, the yeah. original plan had been to do a full QA, questions, answers from top to bottom. And then you sent it through and it was 25,000 words. <laughs> we were kind of thinking of a limit of three or four. So it needed some, some chopping, definitely. It was a terrific interview. I thought you guys did a great, great job with him. Covered 
hell of a lot of ground through it. I mean, he was here for nigh on two hours and there probably was that much to, to get into. I think the club would like to, now, certainly now the transfer window's closed, to draw a line between what went before and what's going to happen now as if to say, you know, that was then and this is what went wrong. This is how it's going to be from this point forward. And there are things that have happened over the summer that make it easier to do that change of ownership, change of head coach, change of division, certainly. But um, the, the, the shift of players in and out as well, there, there is a different a different picture at the club. There's a different uh, different set of faces. There are some constants of which um, Angus Kinnear is obviously one. He was Radrazani's chief executive. He's also now the 49ers CEO. And you did ask him about his position and you know the scrutiny that is on it or, or should, should be on it. But I thought, the biggest takeaway from the interview, I thought as a whole it kind of depicted the regime that has gone as one that was, in the end, out of its depth in the Premier League and not fit for purpose and trying but failing to punch above its weight. Uh, if you if you go through all the, the different issues that you got into, and there were, there were lots from players to coaching staff and everything else, Kinnear was pretty much admitting recruitment, wrong. The hire, hiring of head coaches after Bielsa, wrong. You know, the, the level of funding that Radrazani had in the Premier League, wrong as well. I think you have to be careful how you frame that because it's possible to have what we would regard as insane levels of wealth and for that to be virtually worthless in the Premier League. I mean, I'd, li- I'd like to be as poor as Andrei Radrazani. Ex- exactly that. And if, I, if you were given £100 million in cash tomorrow, it wouldn't take you very far when it came to Premier League ownership. You, you, I mean, I'd never w- see you two again. No, you, you certainly... I'd be drinking myself to death in the sun. <laughs> you certainly wouldn't. Although you would find that if you went into football club ownership, you lost the money in an instant and then you'd be back here begging Michael for um, your job back and trying to bin Moscow out of the, uh, <laughs> the presenter's seat. But you wouldn't, give or take, you wouldn't be able to buy a club. In most instances, you wouldn't be able to buy a majority share of a Premier League club. You've got a lot of money coming in, but you would have to spend it on players, um, transfers and, and wages. Otherwise, you'd get relegated. Even if you do spend it, you might get relegated anyway and you end up in the championship where clubs just are resigned to making massive losses. So your money just just completely disappears. So I think Kinnear said at one point, you can't really criticise somebody for not being rich enough. And I think in, in a financial sense, that's, that's true and, and that's probably fair. But also, the timing of the takeover, wrong. Kinnear said more than once in that, had the 49ers bought a year ago, had they bought previously, you know, this might have been different. There were opportunities for that to happen had everybody on all sides been been willing to to do it. I think, would you in the end call it systemic failure? I think you probably would. Um, and I think I've been, I called it that from a while back, to yeah, be honest. Like that, I think it always felt like, and it's exactly the stuff that Angus Kinney was getting at when it came to the Bielsa era and why ultimately that failed and everything ends up failing in one capacity or another in football, doesn't it, in the end? sadly. But it always felt to me like we never quite had the wealth to do what he wanted or there wasn't the infrastructure there behind it at the club or whatever it might be. It just, it, it felt eventually like it was going to fail. Dysfunctional, I would say, and and basing this on Kinnear's own comments, dysfunctional in a way where the consequences were going to be inevitable, you would probably say. I think the thing, the frustration on the transfers and not having enough money is that we did have the summer of selling Rafinha and Phillips for record yeah. fees and there was the potential there, as you see at Brighton. Like if you look at Brighton's net, net spend this summer is like minus 110 million or something because of all the players they've sold. But they'll still have a good season. There are there are ways of selling players and bringing players in and getting the conveyor belt going of people coming through. And he, our, he conceded our, that, didn't he? As well, but yeah. our first real attempt at doing it, we didn't get any hits on it. 
they were basically all failed. And yeah. and it's not like we didn't spend money because yeah. we spent and, a lot, didn't we? Really? And, yeah. I know I know the fees of sort of ten to twenty five million pounds, which is the sort of ballpark we were in for most of them. I know they're not big fees, but you can expect a half decent footballer from for that normally. Yeah. And I don't feel we got any. There was a piece on the Athletic last week or the week before, which was talking about the way in which fees have gone up and saying that Premier League clubs now, when they inquire about somebody, expect to be quoted off the bat, irrespective of who it is, you know, 20 million, 25 million pound fee for that player, because that has become kind of standard price. And there was quite a lot of merriment in our office at Rob Holding moving from Arsenal for four million quid. You just thought, does anybody even, even get out of bed for that kind of money anymore? And clearly they do in rare cases. But I think it is the case that you no longer think of 10, 50 million pounds in the Premier League, you know, players of that level being a thing. Everybody does spend more. And it's possibly true that Radrizani came into this and into the Premier League at, at perhaps the worst time if you're not dealing in billions. You know, if you don't have billions to deal in and you only have millions, it is getting harder and, and harder and harder. You're definitely right about the recruitment. I just thought there was a, there was a kind of underlying tone of an attempt to game the system, except in what was said about the possibility that there are, among a group of, I think he said 12 clubs, Kinnear, and that's probably about right, possibly 14, but you know, 12 certainly. It doesn't take much in any season for any of them to get into trouble and, and to go down. Some some are better placed than others. Some are more sensible in what they do than others, but it's, it's quite an even field. And if you take Everton surviving last season, in no way through design, you know, in the end, through luck and, and through chance of, of getting away with it on, on the final day of the, the season. But minus, I guess, the, the the money that they needed to a certain level, they were trying to get hits, like you say, with players who Kinnear described as, in the end, being five out of tens, but who they thought could be exceptional on the day. But actually, the kind of baseline level that they were playing at wasn't high enough to, to keep them up. Trying to an extent to game the system by going for somebody like Marsh, who just wasn't suitable, wasn't right, didn't work, looks now like a, a punt and a gamble, uh, which you know it, it was really, uh, when there were out there far more, I guess, far safer bets on the coaching front when you're replacing Bielsa. I think in all, the, in all of what's happened, that will probably be the biggest regret for the club, is what they did after Bielsa, who they... Who they however... However much the relationship with Bielsa had broken down and however much they felt that the change needed to be made, in order for them to justify doing it, the change had to be right. And it wasn't on the basis that they've been relegated. And Kinnear said himself, you know, at the timing of sacking Marsh, with hindsight now, you remember the conversation we had after the Leicester game away. And you said to me, do you think there's any way back from this? And I said, no, I don't. I was slightly, um, slightly surprised at that, by the way. I, yeah, didn't, I, didn't, that, think you, I didn't think you'd call it that it, early. It was, it was so extreme on the night and it, it sort of been building and there'd been this scepticism anyway that it just didn't feel right, didn't feel good, didn't feel like it was going in, in a good direction. And Kinnear's admission was, it's clearly a mistake. We should have done it around about the time of the Liverpool and Bournemouth games because the World Cup rate was coming up. That would have given us more scope. Would it have made a, a total difference? Would it have kept them up? It's really difficult to say because the squad didn't perform, but it might have changed the players they went after in January. It might have just made them you know, more pragmatic in a way that, that actually actually worked. Well, what we do know is that the path that they followed led to relegation. So we know that the alternative was probably better. Well, it would have been it would have been worth a go. And I think in the same way as had they gone down on the marsh away at Brentford on the last day of the, the 21-22 season, then there would have been that part of you thinking, well, they might as well just have stuck with, with Bielsa. No, absolutely. I think one of the things we have to acknowledge 
is that Kinnear has personal and professional relationships to maintain as well. And that dictated the tone of what was said on, on the show as well. So for example, you know, his work, and I mentioned it to him in the show that he's, he worked closely with Victor Orta. So yeah. they've obviously got a relationship there. So people expecting him to completely throw Victor Orta under the bus over the recruitment, just, it probably just wasn't going to happen, was it? No, no, I don't think so. And, and he got into that towards the end when you were asking him about the programme notes. And he said, you know, I'm chief executive of the club. So if you expect me to come out and slate Bamford or Furpo in the programme notes, it's not going to happen. Whatever people's personal view on that or what's been said behind the scenes, you, you have you do have to present some sort of company club image in the same way as you have to in, in an interview like that. I do think it's far better to be seen to face up and front up to questions like that than it is to just hide away. I mean, clubs generally like to like people to engage with them and to listen to them and and you know to to promote the message when things are going swimmingly and when they've got th- things to sell or things to promote or things that they that they want credit for. But the reality is that, that supporters, your average fan base, want answers to things that go wrong as well. And I think, can you having sat with you for two hours, it becomes difficult after that stage to expect him to continue speaking about this stuff relentlessly. You know, his answers are his answers. You either take them or you don't, but that's his his point of view and, and he's been he's been pressed on on a lot of it. If you say nothing, I think it does great with a fan base who'd say it's all, all well and good promoting this image of the club when it's great and things look grand from the outside. But you do have to show that when things go wrong that you're willing to talk about that as well. You're willing to explain what's gone wrong. And I do feel that over time, and, and it's happening a little bit, but as time goes on, clubs are going to become so big and so consumed by money at such a high level, a high level of finance, that they will become completely detached and they won't feel the need to specifically answer for, for anything. But I don't think Leeds are at that level. And I also think in this city and with this fan base, there's an expectation that you're acknowledged and that they, they do pay attention to to what you what you think. So whether or not people like the answers that were given or what was in the, you know, like the content of the interview, I think it's a good thing that the interview happened because I do think that hiding away from this and just saying, well, that was then and, and we're moving on isn't a good look. I feel like the the idea that the fans were being ignored as well comes from the end of last season as well, where you to contrast to staying up at Brentford, you had Arter on the pitch, you had Radrazani on the pitch, you had Arter kind of central to things. He's ragging Jesse Marsh around, pointing at him to the end of last season where Arter's gone, Radrazani's in Italy trying to buy another club. And the feeling was like, well, there's no one here anymore. Like, yeah. there's, there's no one running this place. I think the takeover was a factor in that as well. And and again, it's all the nuance, isn't it? And I guess that was the thing about the interview was he started to get a bit of nuance behind the, the issues as opposed to just kind of pitchforks at, at the ready. But takeovers are predominantly confidential processes. So it's not as if everybody can update on, on what's going on all the time. And it's quite telling, I think, that the EFL have introduced new rules now, which mean that you cannot announce a takeover in principle. So Leeds, special Leeds rules. Leeds did that, and I don't think the EFL were very happy about it. Although I don't think Leeds came a cropper because I don't think the rules were in place quite at that point, but they certainly are now. But the reason that it was done, and the reason that the club put out that really, really brief holding statement, which just said literally, Radrazani and the Forty Niners have agreed this deal. It will now need EFL approval. The end. You know, basically, um, there were no sort of bells and whistles on it at all. The reason they did it was because there had been total silence from the club for nigh on four or five weeks after getting relegated. And the reason for that was because it's all going on in the background. 
that's fine and that's legitimate in, in a lot of respects and, and it's hard for it to be any different. But it doesn't change the fact that you have a, a big fan base who you want to come to games and buy tickets and buy merchandise, buy the new kit, who are sitting saying, what has gone on? What is going on? You know, answer some questions. It was important to take ownership of it, wasn't it? Yeah. Even if you come in and saying the obvious thing, we got it wrong, I accept responsibility for it. Sometimes people just need to hear it and go through yeah. that process. Some people won't like it. Some people will still be sitting saying, I don't accept this, I don't accept that. Some people will still be questioning Kinnear's job. You did. He said, probably actually, one of the, the, the most interesting lines from it was him saying, I don't think relegation has one relegation has to be terminal in terms of a CEO's future or a CEO's position. Again, that's probably a valid point of view, although the counterpoint might be, well, perhaps that could have applied to Bielsa as well. I do accept that head coach's job, CEO's job are totally different um, and totally different requirements. I do accept that the relationship between the club and Bielsa was not brilliant at the point where, where he went and there was some pretty severe doubt about whether he would want a con- contract extension, whether he would be offered a contract extension at the end of the season. It was all a little bit of, of a mess. But you have seen other clubs who've been relegated and, and bounced back. I think there comes a point, doesn't it, where there's only so much failure you can be associated with. And I think even though, to use Arthur as an example, even though Arthur and the club parted company by what you'd call mutual consent, he wasn't sacked. But he wanted Gracia to stay in the job after the Bournemouth defeat. The board didn't. The, um, you know, Keneal was, was suggesting Allardyce as an option, something he could get. Otto wasn't having that, so it was agreed that they would go their separate ways. Even if that hadn't happened, I think it would have been incredibly difficult for Otto to have stayed on as director of football this summer because too much water under the bridge, too much of a frustration, and sometimes it becomes far too much of a diversion or a distraction um, for a club who really do need to settle down. Do you think with Otto, because this is kind of a nagging suspicion I've had, is that maybe he felt in some ways, for as much as Bielsa did, in some ways, he felt we'd maybe reached a point where Bielsa was holding us back because was, he was maybe saying no to signings that he thought, no, because if we can get this player in and if we can just find someone who's willing to work with this, maybe it can it can move us on and we can churn more players through and we can buy a lower level of player. Because Kinney was basically saying yesterday, Bielsa was only asking for like £40 million footballers. And then in the end, he was saying, OK, fine, I'll just keep Tyler Roberts if we can't get that. Do you think there was a... A frustration with that and maybe the, the club thought they could do it without Bielsa and it was completely naive to think that? I think it had reached the point where they, they weren't able to function properly together. It had almost it had almost become a, a collision of reality versus what was, was really needed in that the club didn't have enough money to serve up the sort of players who would have allowed Bielsa to take, uh, you know, properly push leads beyond the level they were at. Again, I, I suppose you have to debate whether or not that is something you'd criticise the club for in as much as the money you've got is the money you've got yeah so if you if you have a fortune behind you then you can move into the higher bracket of, of signings I never got the feeling through the Premier League years that Leeds were in a position to move into that bracket of signing perhaps they would have been had the 49ers had the, the funding behind them which they, they say they have and, and appear to have and, and I think a lot of us felt and certainly feel with hindsight that you know the summer of 2021 felt like the point at which if fresh money had come in in a big way, it could have made a, a really big difference. And the point that um, Keneal was speaking about, you know, Bielsa and Radrazani saying, it's, you know, you need to replace me as coach or you need to replace the entire squad. Radrazani said that to us when we interviewed him at the beginning of, of last summer. 
and he said, you know, the two of them had, had spoken about it, but it, it had kind of been accepted that they didn't want to lose Bielsa, but they weren't able to to deliver, you know, a stack of 30, 40 million pound players. They they just didn't have, have the cash. I think they definitely thought at the point where they sacked Bielsa that bringing somebody else in, things being a bit more pragmatic, a change away from man to man, everything else, if they could stay up and if Marsh was as good as they thought he was, then it could lead to a more stable period and a period that, that kind of retained Premier League status. But the results speak for themselves and it did not work. Yeah, but what it boiled down to was that the, the manager wasn't good enough and the recruitment wasn't good enough because Kinnear himself acknowledged that, didn't he? He said, yeah. you can afford to get maybe one of them wrong, but he also knows that if you get one wrong uh, in a Premier League season, you leave yourself open to relegation yeah, and, and Leeds yeah. got both wrong. Yeah, and, and even if you get one wrong, you still have to redeem that. You know, So Villa, for example, with Emery... That's the sort of decision where if it really works, it cures everything. But, you know, there are other scenarios where Everton, for example, Lampard goes, Dyche comes in, they get away with it by the skin of their teeth, but it's not looking great for them again this season because it's not it's not that easy to solve midway through the season. And it certainly isn't that easy to solve when so many of the players you've signed are just not not performing and not looking like decent level Premier League footballers, even if they are. Emery was one of the points I wish we'd gone back on, actually, because... Kinnear said that he was too expensive for them at the time. They essentially said, yeah, he'd have been, he's, a, he's a good manager, we'll have done well to get him, but we couldn't afford him. But it's almost to probe what couldn't we afford. Couldn't we afford his wages? Couldn't we afford the transfer budget he wanted? Because obviously he made a big thing of saying, you know, we were paying Bielsa an absolute fortune in the championship. So obviously at points we were willing to stick a huge amount of money into a management, into a manager, but then at that point, clearly not. One of Emery's first games was, and I don't think it was his very first, was against Leeds at Villa Park. And if you look back at the coverage we did of Marsh's sacking and around about that time, we were saying that the Villa game, weirdly enough, as with Bielsa the previous season, it had been Villa Park where there had suddenly been this groundswell, certainly within Radrazani, but, you know, and the board in general that this might not be good and, and we might need to change this. The Villa game was the weekend, even though Leeds played well there, really unlucky to lose to Villa, but they did lose. There was a big suggestion over that weekend that Radrazani was going to sack Marsh. There was a big suggestion that if he did, Victor Orta was going to resign because he still believed that Marsh could do the job and, and would keep them up. And you'll notice in the transcript with Kinnear, there is the line where he says, and you asked him about you know when, when Marsh could have been sacked, and I think he was talking more about the, the Bournemouth-Liverpool period, but he said there wasn't alignment on the board about this. There was not kind of unanimous agreement I think I mean I don't know if you thought he was saying differently but I thought that's what yeah, he said yeah, you know? that, yeah. Yeah. and that was the case around about the Villa defeat as well was that Radrazani to my mind wanted a change there were other people and I can't you know, I can't position who was where exactly but there wasn't widespread agreement that yes at that point we definitely definitely need a shift so whether or not they could have afforded Emery I think is a little bit of a red herring because I don't think at the point where Emery was available they were genuinely mobilising to, or not en masse, to replace Marsh. So by the time Marsh went, he'd gone as an option anyway. And as a follow-on from that, just returning to the post-Bournemouth game, we've seen a repeat of that behaviour, haven't we? That Otto wasn't willing to let Grassia go. And then that brings you back to this this, this idea of a point of failure that I've raised with, um, with Kinnear, that ultimately Otto's got so much sway and you, you wonder if maybe did he have that much sway because of the the success of Bielsa, that he was able to wield more power within that dynamic. And 
had a lot of say over subsequent managers and maybe at that point, because he's doubled down on Marsh, he's doubled down on Gracia, that it it brings a lot of attention back to him, doesn't it? And his yeah, failings, ultimately. I I think what I've seen at Leeds has convinced me more and more that there is definitely a place at a club for a sporting director, director of football with an awful lot of authority. And it wouldn't surprise me that much if at some point down the line, Leeds, despite the fact that at the moment they've got this setup of Nick Hammond and Greta Steinson, Hammond, I think, must be out of contract or thereabouts now, but Leeds would really like to keep him. It'd be interesting to see where that goes. I think they like what he's done through the summer. They like the way he operates and the way he works, and he's 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 very experienced. So you might well see him stay on if, if he's willing. But it wouldn't surprise me that much if they do at some stage employ an overarching director of football, sporting director, whatever the title is, who who goes above them. You have these these positions and these people at a lot of major clubs too, but the more I look at it, the more I sort of realise that you also have managers with massive amounts of authority too. That was true of Bielsa and it worked for a long period under Bielsa. I also think for what it's worth, it's far more true of Farker than it is for anybody who's gone before him. Allardyce, I think, is the sort of guy who you can't really tell to do X, Y and Z, but the Allardyce period is just worth disregarding completely because as Kinnear said, you know, there was no science to that it was just a case of can this guy motivate the players through four games and somehow get us out of this hole no he can't but Farker the, we we said a few weeks back that the, the demand for the title of manager over head coach is kind of semantics and I think Kinnear used that word in the interview but it's pretty significant because I think what Farker was saying was I'm in charge here you know when it comes to the first team I am in charge I'm not going to be told who to play I'm not going to be told who to, to sign. You know, the comment of Daniel does not report to a director of football, I think summed it up really. You've almost gone back to something closer to the, the Bielsa era in that this, and I know from some things that have gone on this summer, that he's, he can be very ruthless far in a, in a good way when he needs to be. You know, he's very much in control, very much in, in his head. You know, this is, my, this is my kind of fiefdom to run in a positive sense. I think it's a really good appointment. How quickly it works or whether it works it will determine how good it really is. But I sort of feel that with a, a manager with the authority of Bielsa, a, a very, you know, a, a sporting director, director of football with a lot of authority can work. But I think Leeds, my personal view is that Leeds might have suffered from the fact that post-Bielsa, the head coach, manager, seemed to have less and less power, less and less influence, less demanding. Do you think that goes back almost to a time when Alter first arrived and I suppose we were coming off the back of Monk and into Christensen and Christensen in some ways feels like almost a mirror image of the Marsh appointment in that he was someone plucked slightly from obscurity and certainly not a name that any any fans would have been asking for and then had a load of players pushed in his direction and I know in the case of Marsh there were a load of Red Bull players there so they were, they were people who would have wanted to a degree but it felt like it was almost a transition from Alter pulling the strings so then there's a middle bit where Bielsa is doing it. Then it goes back to Arta, and now we're back to we're back to Farker. And the bits that where Arta was doing the football stuff, it basically was a disaster. I think that's certainly true. Of the first season, Christensen, to my knowledge, seemed to take very little interest at all in signings. Not that he didn't want good players. Not that he didn't look at who was coming in and so on. But he wasn't the sort of coach who went around shouting the odds or dropping lists on desks and saying, "I've got to have these players." They were being put to him, and he was kind of saying, "Yeah, no, that that'll be fine." And and it didn't didn't work out. And when I was saying earlier about gaming the system, I think Christensen falls into that quite a bit. You know, the idea that we're going for this fairly obscure coach who, okay, had, you know, certain level of success out in Cyprus, 
but was not well known at all, was not in any way proven as a, a championship coach, didn't work. I mean, it, it started really well, oddly, but, you know, didn't work and, and clearly had to be changed. And a little bit like that with Heckenbottom as well, although the thing about Heckenbottom at the time, and nobody wanted to really hear this, but he was regarded as a good coach, like good, talented, capable coach. And he has won promotion with, with Sheffield United and he has done done good things there. It just wasn't a great fit at a time where the squad was nowhere near what it needed to be to get promoted without the kind of attention and, I guess, talented coaching nous that Bielsa ploughed into, you know, and made this amazing team out of what looked like a mid-table, mid-table squad. It, it just wasn't, wasn't the right fit. And as I say, I, I think they would have had to have been, I mean, perhaps 49ers would have thought differently. They didn't think poorly of him particularly. And they, they do like Kinnear, which is why he's still in, in place. But I think the 49ers would have had to seriously consider that position this summer because it had become toxic. Talking about that approach, and you raised it, uh, Michael, actually with Angus Kinnear, saying that with the exception of Bielsa, it's felt like before and after there are some obvious, like, things that have been consistent throughout in terms of management and recruitment and stuff like that. Felt a little bit like we've kind of, we've gone into the mine and started picking up rocks, hoping to find a diamond inside one of them and smashing them open. Actually, it turns out some of them are just rocks. And the exception to that was Bielsa, who was who was the the finished, polished gem, wasn't he? And that, that's the one that they got right. Although, I mean, some of the players they've signed have turned out to be good players. I think that's hard to, hard to deny, but not enough of them. And I think not enough of the players who big money was spent on all, but you, you class is big money and, United and if, you, and if you're going to do that, Phil, you need to supplement it with, as Kinnear said, the six and sevens out of ten. Well, there's, there's the the lesson, absolutely. But I think I think it was a combination of two things. I think it was a combination of what seems to me to be Alter's kind of preference or, or the, kind of the trend in in his recruitment of going for things that seem a bit out there. You know, or I think you were you used the phrase Victor's broken toys, but that you know, why go for a really obvious coach when you could go for Jesse Marsh or you know. But also, as was apparent, and I think was apparent in the Kinnear interview, the financial limitations that meant that when it came to it, they didn't have the quality that they needed. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
One of the really interesting takeaways from it was when um, when Angus said Leeds United breaks managers in reference to bo- <laughs> to both Marsh and to Javi Gracia. And I've, t- I've said that to you loads of times on this. But it, it does. It breaks players as well. It's a very I've said loads of times. It's a really heavy shirt to wear. Is Leeds and I think I don't know if it speaks to an arrogance or a I don't know a, a hubris within the recruitment of managers and players that they they didn't engage like this level of critical thinking with it because you could have sat in a room and I could have told them that because yeah. I've, I've, I've seen enough leads over the years to know that it does it. People just crumble for whatever reason under the, the demands of it. And it, I don't know if it's unique to our circumstances or our recent history has kind of damaged everybody, but we've seen these huge highs that have been offset with ter- tremendous lows. I mean, like who else has been in the Champions League and League One in the same decade? You know what I mean? It's As like, the song goes, we're a right set of bastards when we lose. Yeah, but but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? So it's it's kind of, we've done this bloody sawtooth trajectory, to use a, a canerism, up and down through the leagues. And it's it's messed out a lot of our expectations up because, I mean, in my lifetime, I've seen us lift the, the, the league title. And then 10 years later, we were in the Champions League. And then five years after that, we were in League One. And I mean, it's just... It, just, it blows your mind and it creates a very unique mindset within the fans that gets passed down through the generations. And, and for whatever reason, it makes Ellen Road difficult to play in when things go badly. And too many players and too many managers have been recruited who just not just do not cut it. I don't think it's unique entirely because there are definitely other clubs that break managers too. I see it a lot with the old firm in Scotland because being second in the SPL is the equivalent of you might as well be in, in League One. And that is how it goes. You know, if you're second in Glasgow, you're pretty much last and the pressure's horrendous. Nobody lets you away with it. You're going to probably see it quite soon with Michael Beale. It's harsh. But people get sucked in because they think, amazing job this. Great clubs to manage. You know, big, big football in City, Glasgow. So you go do it. There's, a, there's you, a vanity, isn't there? Could I be the one? Could I be the one? There's, yeah. there's vanity, but there's probably also excitement as well and just the, the lure of it. And then you, you get you get butchered. The difference at Leeds, I think, is that there must be occasions where coaches or managers and players have thought, okay, yeah, no, it's a championship club and probably walk into it not quite realising what it's going to be like. There may well be this perception on the outside that although Leeds have really big tradition and culture and reputation and everything, they haven't done much for the last 20, 20 odd years. So perhaps it's all just a bit kind of, not easy, but perhaps there's not that much expectation you get there and the expectancy is always extreme it is it's always really wild and and justifiably so a lot of the time I think but also there really are not many fan bases who kind of got flogged in the way that Leeds did from you know 2003 onwards the catalogue of the the book I wrote about Bielsa the chapter in it about the demise goes on forever because it, there's just no end to it. You know, the, the catalogue of failures and incompetence and, and things that didn't work, the promises that were made about this is going to happen, that's going to happen, never did. You know, 15 years on, you're still in the EFL, you're still in the championship, but finally, with that kind of big, big light at the end of the tunnel because of Bielsa, it does generate kind of irremovable frustration and anger. Oh, we're, we're very damaged, as, do, damaged as a fan base. So I think somebody like Farker, for example, can probably withstand that, which is not to say that it's going to be a success for him, but I don't think you're going to see somebody who is going to fall apart on on the touchline rapidly. Can you reference the fact, as he put it, you know, Farker has not lost his shit through this summer, which has been quite an achievement because, you know, parts of this summer have been really difficult for him and haven't looked massively productive. You know, the wait for signings, the, I guess the doubt about, we want Pirro, but are we actually going to get Pirro? 
Sinistera still trying to get out the door at the, the very last hours of the transfer window. Said it loads of times, not an easy gig, but I think he is the sort of coach who is more able to cope with this sort of stuff. And you're right, you do have to pick right. You might even describe it as what, Michael? Unbelievable heart. Unbelievable heart. Indeed. If only there was a mug with those words yes. on it. Oh, there we go. It was available for nine ninety nine. Oh, less than eight, that. Oh, eight quid, I think. Eight quid. Yeah. So okay. then, yeah, or, so. or free if you just come in here and nick one. Yeah. Do you know what? <laughs> sold an absolute boatload of them, haven't we? Like, it's the, <laughs> the fastest selling mug we've ever done. So if you want an unbelievable hard one, the squareball.net. So, and cheers if you bought well, one you, as well. You see mugs... It just I, helps I, keep everything going, by the we way. We never sold any Jesse Marsh merch, did we? No, we didn't. Well, mugs with... Managers, head coaches on. Bielsa was an exception. I mean, you still sell, I would imagine, loads of Bielsa merch forever, no problem. But merch with head coaches on is risky because you just never know. And unlike players who have, you know, like Jamie Shackleton, for example, rebirth this season. Once you go on, you're gone as a head coach, largely yeah. speaking. No, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Um, fans draw parallels between eras, though, don't they? And just to return to that subject and the reason why fans are like they are now and I made this point too Kinnear as well you know does the club understand that the frustrations and the, the over the top responses are often fueled by seeing parallels with what happened before when we went down before you know, it's, it's within a generation that we remember tumbling out of the Premier League and basically Ridsdale I don't know hiding the fact that it was so bad saying everything's alright we'll sell this player and everything will be alright and then we sell that player and then we sell another one and then we sell another one and then we go down like, and you just feel like year upon year upon generation decade upon decade you feel like you've been lied to this yeah you do um this is different in comparison to 2004 i've i've kind of always felt that partly because of what i've been told about 2004 i mean quite a lot of the stories from that period are disputed you know some people say x some people say y somebody told me that as an example when they got relegated from the premier league there were youth team players and bear in mind this is like 20 years ago there were youth team players who were a mile from the first team never likely to play stack of them who were on 10 grand a week and if that's true, you know, the addition to the wage bill alone is huge and, and I don't think leads to anything in the way of, you know, relegation clauses, um, wage deductions, all that sort of stuff. They were in total financial meltdown at that point, which they just are not at the moment. It's, it's not comparable. It's not to say that there aren't financial pressures in the championship. There definitely are. And Keneal spoke about PNS and the way in which, and this is probably the most relevant part of it actually, the way in which existing championship clubs who've been here for a while and who have no parachute payments are becoming more and more intolerant of clubs coming down with additional money to spend and are trying to, via you know limits on what you can spend and how much you can lose, are trying to make it more of a level playing field by saying, even if you come down with parachute payments of 55 million quid, 45 million quid, you aren't going to be able to spend that all on players because you'll breach... PNS rules but they are in you know the, the squad isn't perfect I find myself thinking this week is a squad ever perfect and the reason I was thinking that was because I noticed after the City game last weekend um, our Manchester City writer Sam Lee tweeting um, wanting some input for, for the podcast that he does and saying to people do you think City's squad is weaker this season than it was last season which is actually a fair question because they've lost Gundogan and they've lost Maris but there is part of you still that's thinking you know, like it's do the crown jewels look as shiny this, fractional, this week? Fractional, fractional degrees. Um, so, you know, left back, there's a question mark over left back at Leeds, isn't there? I think if Byram is fit all the way through, he'll be a good one, but you have to wonder is he, is he going to be fit all the way through? And there's a question at number 10. And had they gone for a Miri um, and got a Miri done, then I think he would have played there no problem. They didn't go for anybody else before the window closed, which I think tells you that. The 49ers in particular, Farker presumably hadn't seen anybody else that, that he would have gone for or, you know, that, that was available. 
but also I think the 49ers were quite big this summer on trying as best they can while accepting that they were going to have to do deals and they were going to have to be players coming in not being drawn into signing players they didn't really want because they were feeling pressure to fill certain periods at certain positions um, so it's it's not complete but I think it's in a reasonably good place pretty good place for the championship whereas the squad that Kevin Blackwell had in 2004 just him and Gary Kelly him, Gary Kelly and I think Dubes might have been that was, that's what he said at the time, wasn't it? It was just me and Gary Kelly was yeah, the famous mantra. Yeah, um, that was pretty much pretty much it. Well, it wasn't really, but you know, yeah. um, you saw where he was coming from. But that squad had very little chance. Admittedly, the summer after they did Hulse and they did Blake and they did Creswell, I think. Um, Creswell Senior. Uh, and got into the playoffs, got to the playoff final. But I think this this squad and the, the structure of the club means that you shouldn't be looking at another collapse like like that nothing like it as you say we'll get that, we'll get that clipped up in a couple oh, of years time yes <laughs> and, but, in the conference yeah. as, as you're saying at the start Phil like, there's a willingness now I think from the club's part they want to be able to draw a line under what's happened and taking us to this point and you know it's not necessarily in their gift to, to dictate when that happens um, no. is it? And, and it's never just going to be a clean line because there are certain people who've carried over between the, the eras such as Angus Kinnear but hopefully if we can now build some momentum, get some wins on the board, the club just needs some wins, doesn't it? That's, that's about the size of it, really. No oh, when, he said it, you know, yeah. the, the ultimate me- uh, metric for football clubs is how are you performing? And it is, from a supporter's point of view, definitely. One yeah. thing I wish we'd got into is next summer and, and the scenarios around that. Because obviously if we, if we go up, it's kind of fixed. We're out of there first time, everything's fine, at least until we're in a relegation battle again. But <laughs> if we don't go up this year, what happens with all the players who are out on loan? What happens with the... I guess the the players who we've managed to hold on to this year. Well, the loan clauses. I was just going to say, sorry to interrupt. I was going to say, I was in the car on the way home after we recorded it, and I went, "Shit, we forgot to ask about the, the loan clauses and what happens next summer." Um, so I did reach out to the club and ask them, and the response is that obviously player contracts are confidential, so they can't discuss individual terms. But uh, it's not going to be a problem next summer. Is the way that they're viewing it. So, and what, I did, I did, what, what does that mean, though? I I think it means that most of these clauses. The vast number of them are now will not be an issue next summer. Will not either will not be valid or not present or whatever. They were a one shot deal. A one shot deal, basically. I think. I mean, someone suggested to me again. I don't know if this is strictly accurate, but somebody suggested to me that Harrison's, for example, might be an issue again next summer if Leeds are not promoted and they're still in the championship. As I say, I'm not sure if that is 100 percent right, but I think the number which they would have an issue with if indeed they have any, would be very small in comparison to the Because fun, if and when Lewis Sinistera comes back after what Kinnear said about that, um, it struck me that he wasn't very happy with the the chosen method of exit, which, um, you know, reading between the no. lines was, was legal threats because it's what we've been talking about in recent weeks, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, you have to be a little bit careful with this because none of us have seen the clauses. None of us have seen... We, we've been told on both fronts that Leeds felt that they weren't obliged to release Adams on the basis of what Bournemouth had bid for him that they weren't obliged to release Sinistera on the basis of the offer that was made for him. Nice were particularly keen on Sinistera. I think Sinistera saw himself getting out on loan in the way that everybody else had before his clause expired. So Leeds' point of view was that legally they felt they were on a really strong footing, but they were concerned that if they were legaled by either Adams or Sinistera, it would be nigh on impossible to use them and to play them. It would be very, very difficult to involve them potentially ever again. And also there's the risk that you might lose, you know, so financially you, you end up in a hole as they did with John Kevin Augustine. Sinistera and Adams evidently felt that they were in the right, that they had a strong argument that they should have been allowed to go. And while, while I totally understand Leeds' frustration 
at be you know the threat of of legal action, you do have to accept that it is possible that the players had you know that had this gone to the EFL, had it gone to Cass or whoever else, might have found in favour of the the players because Leeds felt with John Kevin Augustine that they had a strong case, and you know it's hard to paint that as anything other than Augustine and Leipzig wiping the floor with them. Um, but we'll, we'll we'll probably never know, and I think. I think the main thing is that in both cases it's kind of been sorted out. I don't see Sinistera coming back. Do yeah. you? Um, well, the one factor to think about this as well is if what happens with each respective side if they lose. If if Sinistera loses his case, he's held to his contract. He probably has to pay the club's legal fees. If the club lose, you lose a twenty-five million pound footballer, which is obviously the stakes are different on both sides, aren't they? And you also just do not need the hassle in them. I mean, I mean, Farker was not having Nonto and Sinistera training with the squad at any stage while the dispute was ongoing. It's quite intriguing that Farker thought it had been solved and Farker thought it... And, and I suspect that in his head, he the club had said to him, you know, we've, we've come to this point with it. I wonder if he genuinely thought Sinistera was going to stay. You know, mm. If he genuinely thought, actually, Lewis has decided that this is for me, I'll, I'll stick with it. I can imagine... I did ask Farker after the Sheffield Wednesday game, have any of these departures, I don't mean disappointed you because of the talent that you're losing, but have any of these departures disappointed you because of the way the players have handled themselves or because of either your perception of their commitment versus what, what has actually happened and he just he didn't get into that he just said look it's kind of <laughs> kind of no point really um they've they've gone and and you know that's that's kind of the the end of it but yeah i i just feel that if you get into a legal dispute with a player that they lose having then having them in, in unless you can completely wipe the slate clean and, and refresh everything and agree to disagree and crack on. Are they ever going to play for you again? Can you have them involved? I don't know. It becomes a complete mess. So I can totally see why people have annoyed on deadline day, you know, at Sinister going when it looked like he would be, he would be staying. Jane Anthony, I think is a good signing. Actually, I do think is a a good signing for the championship. Might in the end play more than Sinister anyway, depending on whether Sinister's fitness problems clear up. But I do think that getting into any form of legal dispute with either of these two would have been completely pointless when it came to trying to just have, you know, kind of like tunnel vision on the season ahead. Yeah, I said to a couple of mates who've uh, who discussed it with me, just like texted or whatever, that they didn't just burn their bridges on the way out, they properly napalmed them, didn't they? Which yeah. is probably a deliberate tactic because you, you want to make it impossible to go back so the club is then forced into getting rid of you. Well, it's irrelevant with Adams as far as the future's concerned because he's gone um, on a permanent basis. So, you know, he, he isn't coming back and that's the end of that. Sinistera, yes, potentially returning next summer when loan ends, particularly if Leeds have been promoted. But I, I think you kind of see with Nonto already that if player comes back in and plays pretty well, People tend to be quite quite forgiving, but it would be another scenario where you were needing that to happen because people won't forget this. They never do. Overall, then, do you think it was a worthwhile exercise? Not from our point of view. It was good to get this stuff on record, but from the club's point of view. Yeah, I think it was. As I said at the start of this, I think it's better to be seen to address these things. Even if you know what you're hearing isn't what you, you want, it's better to address these things than not. Because as I say, if, if you want to engage with your fan base... You can't just engage constantly on your terms and, and when it suits. And I think there's been enough that's gone wrong in the past couple of seasons to justify somebody fronting up and saying, look, OK, hands up, this is what happened. Worthwhile just to know how much Diego Llorente gets paid. Yeah, I did do the calculations on that. I, he said it at the time because he said £6 million a year. And I, I do wish we'd followed this up as well and said, Surely, if he's out of contract soon, isn't he? Oh no! <laughs> yeah, someone, someone gave him a new one. And again, this is one of the, the shortcomings of, of what we did. Is that is there was so much we had to cover, and we had so many notes that 
I didn't even think about. Oh no, absolutely. You couldn't, have, you couldn't have kept him here for four hours. Yeah, I, I, no, I didn't even think about Llorente's renewal. But when it came up and he said six million quid a year, I, I went, okay, fine. Yeah, footballers earn millions of pounds a year in my head, and I thought, you know, next thing, move on. And then when I was editing it, I went, I wonder how much that is a week. Oh, that's a lot of money a week. So I wonder if, given that you know there was a uh, an unwillingness to discuss the loan clauses because they're confidential within players' contracts, that actually that was just an exaggeration to make a point rather than giving us Diego Urente's actual wage. I hope so, anyway. Again, it's the it's the clash between what you are telling yourself and what the reality is, and the the sort of the line we were given when Urente did sign his new contract was that. Centre backs are getting increasingly expensive, which is true. I think the the you know the, the sort of caveat to that is that good centre backs are getting um, very expensive, and I don't think much of what we've seen Urenti has convinced us at all that in certain leagues like the Premier League, he's he's what you what you need. But they just okay. He's gone to Roma. He's a couple of loans out there, but Roma specifically didn't activate the option that they had on him, which I think was supposed to be for the fee that that Leeds had signed him for. Taking him on loan again, I think probably high likelihood that he will go there permanently at, at some stage. But you've already seen with Rasmus Christensen that it doesn't seem to be going very well for him at Roma, which I don't think is coming as a huge surprise to... I was going to say, do you know why that is, Phil? And No, fill me in. It's because he's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even however good Christensen is or isn't, I just don't see how last season is an advertisement for a club like Roma. It was particularly peculiar sign in that one I thought but yeah so with Urenti you're saying to yourself centre-back's going up in value so get him on a new contract we can sell him for big money the flaw in the plan being is he not very good as well? well it's not that good that people are piling in with huge offers in the way that they are with say Guardiola yeah but it brings you back to the the idea that um, there's a lot of underlying misjudgment in the recruitment yeah. and you know and I mentioned this to Kinnear as well about bringing in these players from Austrian leagues and so on and so forth without any proven track record in the Premier League, putting them then on Premier League money, which can't be matched by anyone else in Europe, basically, and then finding yourself with a problem at the end, you know, especially when you've given them a 40 to a 60% wage reduction. But Send Brendan Aronson to Saudi Arabia. It's the only, it's the only solution. I think if ever an interview said that a club needed a fresh start, a totally new starting point, different personnel, different ideas, a different direction, that was it. Yeah, definitely. Back next week then, Phil. We'll speak yes. then. We'll see Thank you in a bit. You. The Square Ball Podcast.